Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fighting in the War Rooms Top Tens episode. For the year of our Lord, 2021. Uh, it was it was a year. It was a year in film. Let me tell you. Uh, for there was windows where I think some of us felt uh, safe to go into theaters. I certainly saw some movies in theaters, uh, but maybe there wasn't. In which case, there was a whole bunch of streaming content and content that is now <laughs> available for you to watch content. and catch up with. Content. <laughs> This isn't our top 10 movies. It's our top 10 content. Top 10 wow. content of, of the year. Oh, that would actually kind of change uh, some of mine towards the bottom, I think. But at least. <laughs> uh, interestingly, we this year. like the Jay Hoberman thing of like, oh, the sixth game of the Mets World Series <laughs> right. is on my list. <laughs> A DVD set. on their list first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, we've each picked uh, 10 movies this year. And uh, there's some overlap. Um, but strangely, mostly just with me and other people. Uh, uh, otherwise, we've got a diverse running of films, uh, as we usually do. We will uh, go from tens to ones. Uh, we're splitting this episode into two after the fives. That's how math works. Uh, is there anybody who wants to volunteer to be the first tribute for each one of these? I have not. There's not a particular way to set, set these up that makes them dramatically interesting. I wonder if there's like a game we can play. Like, who has a number 10 that nobody else has on their list? To decide who, who goes first, you mean? Yeah. I like that. All right. Patches, you picked a number 10 that oh, is wow. not on anybody else's list. I have to I say, the Patches figured. 10 slot is a fascinating... I feel like I remember year yeah, the- after year. Like, Aquaman <laughs> was at number yes, 10, this, I this think, one the, year. This is the... like. I don't know if he had the chutzpah slash the, the insanity to put Warcraft in the number 10 spot. Really tempting <laughs> I think that, he thought about it. That's what he would have done. I mean, the Aquaman oh, yeah. almost fits that bill. Aquaman, well, obviously. I anticipated I guess, I guess this. There, there's, also, there's also me. I, uh, me and you, Patches. We, we, we snuck something in You go in first, Dave. 10. Dave, you had an amazing year of watching things because you got into like a critics group you got access yeah you're you plowing through movies this year. i'm a, Dem- a denver film critics society member this and year, and i feel like so my entire some... list is a, a patches 10 slot this year uh just <laughs> pure chaos oh, wow that's the anticipation we need to build for this yeah. episode. <laughs> okay in that case i'm gonna go first uh mine is a movie about a girl obsessed with cars uh, so much so that she eventually has sex with one and is impregnated with one, uh, and then wow, Hotel Transylvania Four really, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really came in as the as the dark horse. Uh, and after a little murderous streak, uh, finds herself in almost an entirely separate film, uh, hiding out as the lost child of a very sad uh, firefighter. And um, this movie was not on my top 10 up until, I think, a couple of days ago. Uh, the 10 spot is a rotating spot of, like, what's just going to barely get it in. And I can't stop thinking about this movie. Not necessarily because there's lots of body horror, of which there is lots of body horror. And um, there is a scene where she attempts to give herself... Uh, an abortion the main character this is all the intro the build-up to you revealing you have not even named the movie (laughs) no one's gonna be able to guess what movie you're talking about about so many movies is called titan 
Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> uh, Julia Ducrenau's, uh Titan, French. Uh, and, I, want, uh, I mean, I just, I Tom don't Norway. have any authority on this subject. I want so badly to say Titan. I believe it's Titan, but I just, I don't have You've gone the, an entire uh, year without uh, fact-checking that pronunciation. No, I mean, I believe it's true. I believe that's that's the correct pronunciation. That's how I remember people pronouncing it in Khan, another word that who <laughs> fuck knows how it's pronounced. Um, but I, I don't think in French there's the, like, the tate, you know. There's the sound. But I I am speaking out of is the magic mic stripper But I do think I'm right. Titan. Titan. I feel like uh, the the movie I described uh, still stands. It has like weird things, not only to say about like obviously sexuality, uh, but also just about I- identity overall and sort of uh, uh, what degree we're allowed to live with uh, self delusion. I think is uh, at least what I was left with. I don't know if uh, that's what it was aiming for because it is a wild film. Uh, that sort of climaxes in a sexy dance on top of a a, a fire engine. It's a it's a interesting interesting choice all around, and so it it squeezes in at number ten on my list just because I have seen it twice and continually think about uh, have I unraveled it enough, uh, which I think means it's worth something. And no uh, one else has it on their list. No one else has it on their it, list. It was. Uh... It was like many good films on my top twenty-five. Uh, some of which is arbitrarily ordered because of the flow of the video. Personal taste is arbitrary. I mean, you're haggling between eleven and twelve. I mean, what's the fucking difference? Uh, but I, I love this movie, and I'm glad that it is resonating with Dave. Yeah. Right, David, you, you went to Cannes, right? You saw this at Cannes? I did indeed. I flew across wow. the ocean. A, it was quite a saga. Foreign yeah. uh, concept, the, that feels like now. I think the most, uh, eh, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, part of what that trip reinforced for me is just how adaptable people are and how wildly quick things become the new normal or snap back to what normal used to be um, and everything feels like a distant memory. Uh, that was the most emotional uh, the most emotionally intense experience of my year was not seeing Titan in, in France, but the uh, experience of leaving my toddler for the first time and going across an ocean and how emotionally fraught that was and the rush of getting back to him. But Titan was a part of it and a highlight for sure. It's definitely a weird movie to try to describe to people, uh, as I think I've just uh, uh, shown. So check it out if anything that I said Sounds like it is something that you would like to watch. So I don't think uh, people should be forced to watch that. It is intense. I don't know um, it's very sweet. It. It's very sweet. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's the, the intensity is just to make <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, want to get to the pronounced. bottom of it. Um, uh, all right, Patches, uh, you're up next with uh, the other s- solo unmentioned there. outing. Sure. Yeah, I want to preface my, my whole list as being like, this year was so strange for me. I, I felt like I, I wasn't keeping up with things. I mean, it was harder than ever to do that um, just from seeing things at theaters or catching things in, in sync with other people. And I'm vastly underwatched, I guess, when it comes to a lot of the forward stuff. And, and documentaries is usually where I go a little bit harder and I didn't so much this year. Um, so I feel like my list... 
but I also wanted my list to be pure and I wanted my list to be true. And it's definitely, I'm prioritizing great movie experiences that I had and films that feel like they were singular or at least coming out after a, a lot of thought being put into them. And uh, so my number 10, I was kind of split. I almost went with Red Rocket here. Um, but I watched Red Rocket on a really shitty for your consideration DVD at like midnight some night, which is very unlikely. And I was I felt delirious and like Simon Simon Rex was just exploding across the screen. And I really wanted to watch it again. But I've been trapped in the same room for eight days because of COVID and haven't had a DVD player. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't. They can't bring you a DVD player. <laughs> I don't, there's no TV in this room. I don't know. I think we have They a, can't get one of those like a thousand dollar portable DVD players with a little DVD seven player, inch LED I screen. I don't know where it is since we moved. I mean, anyway, <laughs> the point is everybody I, else is busy. I couldn't really rewatch Red Rocket and be honest about putting it on this list, but it's such patches approved scum that I'm just like, I can't believe it's not on this list. It might be in another uh, few months. Uh, my number 10 Zola. Uh, Janica Bravo's film. Good which I've now scum seen. alternative. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit scummier. Um, saw this movie two years ago now, right? This is January yep. 2020 at Sundance. Um, and a movie I've revisited once just because it finally came out in spring 2021. Kind of got dumped in theaters it actually played. And then like summer. two yeah. weeks summer later. Summer 2021. Yeah. I mean, the, the blurriest time. And... Um, and and then eventually came out on VOD really quickly after. But um, yeah, this movie is delirium. This movie is dramatically enthralling, surrealist noir. I just, I, I really fell hard for this movie back at Sundance. It's stuck with me since. I think what I love about what Janica Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris, who wrote the script with her, is that the language is really specific. Not just that it's adapted from Twitter and it's pulling dialogue uh, from that Twitter thread by Zola, but that the filmmaking style is so specific and it's punctuated by um, flourishes of being online, uh, literal like tweet sound effects that, that never feel like a gimmick. They always feel intentional and adding to this kind of tapestry that Mika Levy's harp score is also creating, that the 60 millimeter film eye-popping colors it, it, it reminds me almost of um and florida has something to do with this. florida being a kind of living nightmare uh mm-hmm. has everything to do with this uh escape from tomorrow-esque feeling to oh this boy now that's movie. that's a movie i haven't thought about in a minute that's a pull um, <laughs> yeah, um yeah yeah i mean i i think the case could be made that in a way every movie is adapted from twitter but this one owns it. <laughs> Certainly does. <laughs> West Side Story definitely adapted from Twitter when you think about oh, it. Oh, yeah. I read that thread when it happened. Great. <laughs> At Maria. Um, yeah, I mean, and then bolstered by great performances. I had never seen Taylor Page in a movie before. I'm not sure she had been in a movie before, but what an amazing active character who's watching the world implode. It's, the movie is so dangerous. The, the racism is so rampant. The spectrum of colors is so delirious, and through this pop haze, you have this character who still has agency, trying to make an escape in the world that she's in. And her, the person on the other side of the line is Riley Coog playing. Is it Riley Coog? I think it's no. Leo. I, 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 I just did like a. That I, I can like, say with some I just did like a mayor of Easttown pronunciation of Riley Coog. <laughs> Coog? Wow. Riley Coog. 
Um, <laughs> uh, I wow. think it's Kyo. 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 Down by the water. Um, <laughs> anyway, her 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 black scent that she does in this movie is insidious and horrible and pretty daring. I I just I found the whole package here. I love Coleman Domingo's in the movie. Nicholas Braun is basically playing cousin Greg again. There's a sing along driving sequence that like obliterates every carpool karaoke video I've ever watched from my memory. Um, I don't know. The whole package is. Is really pure and weird, and I don't think enough people talked about Zola when it came out, so I had to go to bat for Zola. A a few quick notes about Zola. The first and uh, most interesting to me is that it was shot by Ari Wegner, who also shot The Power of the Dog. Talk about range. What a year. (laughs) She has the range. Uh, She really does. Uh, She also shot True History, The Kelly Gang, Fabric, Lady Macbeth. She's kind of new on the scene, but does not miss... Uh, also, one of the, the last performances you'll probably ever get to see from one of the most thoroughly and cleanly canceled people in, in the history of the modern cancelization, Jason Mitchell. Uh, I don't oh, even wow. think we ever heard about what he had done. I assume he got fired from the chai, right? Yeah, I mean, right. you can pretty easily infer uh, what he had done, but um, the specifics. Forgot he was in it. Yeah, the, don't we don't he need to know. He only has one or two um, scenes. I don't think he will ruin the movie for you if you have not seen Zola. No, I, that's not what I am saying. It's just like it, he's like a ghost. I mean, it's amazing watching this movie that came out two years or that we you know first screened two years ago uh, because th- that does feel like uh, going back in time to see him. Um, not to take away from any of the other fine actors in the film. Uh, and there was one other thing I want to say, but I couldn't. I can't, can't remember. Good movie. Yeah, I thought oh. I uh, as we've been sitting here, I was like, I should should have put my thought and putting that on my list it's good it was number 25 on mine Ooh, all right let's go with katie next who uh gets to be the first person but not the last person to talk mm. about her number 10 pick i can't remember do we save it for later or do we start now i think i think i go brief now right yeah you can go brief and we'll, we'll dig in maybe whoever gets it last gets to dig in it's a yeah. it's tick tick boom uh, one of, uh, I imagine many Netflix movies we'll be talking about <laughs> in this year of, um, movies that were not necessarily easy to see. Um, and one that I had, uh, some skepticism about, cause I wasn't sure about Limo while Miranda as a director, even though I like his music and his uh, Broadway work very much. Um, and I have a lot of feelings about Rent. That can be a whole separate podcast. Um, but I was really bowled over by it. It's so lively. It's got much better music than I was anticipating. Andrew Garfield is, a Amazing. And we've talked about Andrew Garfield a lot lately because you guys saw Spider-Man, which I still haven't seen. Spoilers. Um, and it made me. Oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Sorry. I had to pause for a second. My computer tried to get my AirPods to connect to the computer. Uh, you can that was out. just Marvel. Um, kind of it made me nostalgic for New York and a version of New York that I never got to Spider-Man. live in. But a vision of the East Village that I think maybe a lot of us were attached to before we lived there. Um, and I loved it. Had a great time. Yeah. Tick, tick, boom. It'll be back uh, as, you know, musicals having a good year uh, or music adjacent films. Uh, we don't need to talk too much about it. David, <laughs> yeah. your number 10 pick uh, has actually already been mentioned, but you get to pick it. You're going to have to remind me what it was. I have no idea what it is. Wow. It is Red Rocket. Was it? It was that low? That's a shame. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I guess I need to rewatch it or I need to get this thing on my list. Uh, I mean, I, I it's, it's, it's for someone who made a top twenty-five and saw God knows how many movies this year. I guess ten is uh, nothing to sneeze at. 
but I really loved Red Rocket and know that regardless of whatever number in fact it's in my list, will be a movie that I carry with me going forward um, and that I find emblematic of this year in film, last year in film. I really, really loved it. I think it's as good as anything Sean Baker has ever made, if not better. Uh, a phenomenal, I mean, it, this is so reductive and limiting to say that it's sort of this perfect encapsulation of the Trump era, even though that's part of what the movie's doing in the background with this very unexpected Trumpian-like narcissist of a, of a character, of a sort of Roman candle, of a self-implosive former porn star who's played in one of my favorite movies, uh, performances of the year, rather, by Simon Rex. I'm not surprised that it hasn't gotten a ton of, or that his performance, rather, hasn't gotten a ton of awards he love uh, for the same reason that Adam Sandler did not in, in Uncut Gems. I mean, these performances can generate a lot of electricity, and if you know, people were going to the movies for anything but Spider-Man may have translated to um, a fraction of the Uncut Gems box office, but it was never really going to factor into the into the, the Oscar conversation. But uh, that is no slight against the movie. I mean, I think what Simon Rex does here is just, you know, balls to the wall, fake penis flapping in the breeze. Uh, <laughs> phenomenal. And um, when you say that, like, I think people who haven't seen it cannot underestimate how much fake penis is in this movie like there's so well, much more i mean it's than not like the overnight or anything uh <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that's another bryce another movie. deep cut pull here of sundance <laughs> yeah that was the patrick bryce movie with uh adam jason scott schwarzman. and jason schwarzman where uh, adam scott is insecure about his penis it goes to like a overnight uh like adult sleepover in a way with jason schwarzman and his wife Jason Schwartzman has this like, giant fake dong, and they're both like, oh, everyone gets super comfortable, and they swing for a night. Uh, it was a Sundance movie from like five or six years ago. Nah, you didn't, you didn't um, have to tell me that was a Sundance movie. Yeah. It was written all over it. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, there's there's some fake penis there's a lot in this movie. There's but, just an uh, extended it's sequence used well. of fake penis. Yes. Well, let, maybe, um, let me even let Katie talk about the fake penis a little bit, because we could use this penis <laughs> as a bridge. Wow. Well, uh, are, really? we do, are we done, or are we talking well, no, no, about no, 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 Red Rocket no, no. again let me, later? Let me finish the thing. We're going to use the penis as a bridge. We're going to take let the penis bridge. Walk over the penis bridge. Katie picked Red Rocket as her number nine film. Oh! It's true. Okay. It's true. Uh, we're just here to shame you repeatedly, Patches, for not picking Red Rocket. I know. I, I'm uh, embarrassed. The dirtbag cinema being represented. Well, here's the thing: like dirtbag cinema is not usually my thing. Like no. movies about like unpleasant, bad people, or like yeah, but you love the scary movies, gross or mean people. I, I, there's just it doesn't usually connect with me. Um, but Sean Baker movies generally do, and I like Simon Rex's performance that David was talking about, and just the like. The metaphors that play in it, where it is sort of a 2016 America Trump metaphor, but it's not really. I think calling it a Trump metaphor is kind of more likely to turn people off than serve the movie. Um, but it just felt so specific and and warm in its own way. Like it's affectionate toward this complete disaster fuck up while not letting him off the hook, which is not an easy thing to do. I think the performance is part of that, but I also think Sean Baker is just really good at like looking at people for their for their flaws but also why the people in their lives keep letting them come back um, i mean i don't know this movie. i don't know how much it's worth reading into this because the discourse has a mind of its own and it's untethered from reality most of the time but it is interesting speaking to how well this movie threads the needle that katie was talking about about having this sort of disgusting monster of the lead character who you nevertheless sympathize with uh, to a certain degree even as he self-immolates in front of you and i mean like a trump character just ruins everyone who gets pulled into his his wake yeah. um 
he uh, th- this movie has not generated that same discourse that something like Licorice Pizza has about uh, you know as any movie does these days where the main character is someone who um, you're not supposed to like necessarily a Jordan Belfort type you know with a, with a filmmaker is not explicitly endorsing but that's not like, surprising is it I mean the movie and is it not has big. A, a, it has a no but Sean Baker is um, not big. And there were so many, so many memes about how uh, Licorice Pizza was sort of the human shield that was blocking the discourse from getting to Red Rocket. <laughs> um, far more benign and, and innocent uh, Licorice Pizza, uh, you know, considering the relationship that Simon Rex's character foists upon the, this, you know, caricature of a uh, homegrown, innocent American girl with big dreams, you know, who works at a donut shop, who's played m- remarkably by... This newcomer named Susanna Sohn, who Simon, uh, Simon Rex, who I was going to say Simon Baker, Sean Baker, Simon Baker Isn't is also Simon a person. Simon Baker a person? Yes, yeah, okay, this is why I keep getting yes. confused. Um, who Sean Baker discovered at the Arclight at a screening of wow. He Won't Get Far on Foot. Uh, yeah. Um, if you see Simon Baker, it's like, God damn it. If you see Sean Baker <laughs> across a crowded room and you've got a look to you, you know, you never know what might was happen. Was Simon but... Baker the mentalist or is that someone else? Yes, he was. He ah, was also okay. the, uh, the hot author in The Devil Wears Prada. Uh-huh. Um, but it has nothing to do with this movie. Yeah, he was sort of like a, like a, uh, what's that, that knockoff DVD company that always made? Uh, like the asylum, asylum the asylum, asylum thomas jane until thomas jane asylumed wow. himself into being the fucking like uh red what State is simon baker's type? asylum thomas jane movie that is coming to mind no but he i mean he ta- simon baker ended up being sort of the high rent thomas jane in the long run oh um, i see what you mean but uh he was sort of who you got if you couldn't get thomas jane for a minute um but uh, Simon Baker's still not in this movie <laughs> not not has nothing to do with this movie as far as i know um but yeah, I mean, I, this movie, it, it, remarkable performances up and down. Um, Sean Baker just fucking going for it, uh, really perverting this kind of 70s Spielberg 60 millimeter look. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an awesome movie. And Eat I your heart that, out, Super 8. Yeah, really. I mean, people are going to continue <laughs> discovering this one for a long time to come. And it makes excellent use of InSync's Bye 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 from the yes, very opening frames uh, and doesn't let you forget it, so... Yeah, in a in a year of like millennial late '90s, early 2000s nostalgia, uh, that bye 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 use is among the best nostalgia we've gotten. Oh man, yeah, Dave, you, uh, Dave, have you seen Red Rocket? I have not seen Red Rocket. Oh, okay, I I think you would like it. Uh, it is sounding it's sounding very intriguing. As long as I don't make the mistake that just because a movie is about somebody, it is endorsing somebody. That seems to be. I don't a, think you're usually at risk of making around. that mistake. Retweets are not endorsements. How many times <laughs> do we have to say this over the last decade? Uh, I think I go next. <clears throat> My number nine um, is a movie that cried its way uh, onto this list. It is uh, Coda, the mm. story of a young girl who is the uh, titular acronym, a child of deaf, ad- deaf adults. Uh, who loves to sing and turns out she's really good at singing and maybe has a shot at uh, going to Berkeley College of Music. But if she does, she's going to leave her deaf uh, fisherman family in a very tough spot, um, possibly not able to continue uh, their lives as uh, it has been ever since she was born. And it's sort of been a uh, their ability or their, their hearing connection uh, to the rest of the world. Um, I guess... 
this year on podcasts, uh, I heard you guys review uh, the film King Richard, and then I watched King Richard and talking about it, it's sort of like a a feel good movie that you know like works. It's kind of hard to hold stuff against it. Coda, I think, is like the Teflon feel good movie where even though there are parts of it that are cheesy and there are parts of it that are so sincere, it seems like uh, it's maybe breaking uh, the credibility of its own story world. Um, I fall for it all the time and do that weird ugly crying where I'm trying to smile but also crying and so all the muscles (laughs) in my face hurt. Uh, That happened to me several times during Coda. So it's a real shoot with uh, my heart moment uh, for Coda, putting it here at number nine. And the good news is, uh, I don't think this is going to be the last time we're talking about it. I'll just Uh, say that movies that work emotionally can get away with murder. Yes, Uh, absolutely. It has always been true, and Coda makes it, you know, is is a shining example of that. Coda killed my family, and they have not, (laughs) it has not been held accountable. <laughs> uh, this will come up later on my list, not because of Coda, because it's not on mine. But uh, if a movie ends with someone going away to college and like that's the big emotional finale, I will like that movie. It, it's it works on me every <laughs> single time. Oh, now I'm Kids are all right. What is gonna be? Lady Bird? Yeah, we'll we'll get there. But yeah, I, I've realized that that's my true um, like kill code in a uh, in a movie. Just, <laughs> that's wow. how they just me. go away to college. At the <laughs> oh, don't go away to college. Don't go away. Oh, they're going away <laughs> to college. Oh, don't wave wistfully at your family oh, as you walk up the no, stairs to your new your life. Shoulder. You can't take a picture of this. It's already gone. Oh. Yep, you know, you, yep. you've seen it. And the sea arises. Uh, <laughs> all right. So before we uh, crush Katie later on with more Coda patches, Yes. You're up with a very interesting number nine pick. Yeah, my number nine pick. Uh, no irony to this pick. There's uh, no so bad it's good caveat. There are no excuses. Number nine, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really had to. I This movie's fucking hysterical, and it's crafted with such care. I rewatched it in my COVID state to make sure it really held up that the, the culottes were... Uh, we're we're bouncing as highly as I thought they were, and I they it is it's just really fucking funny. Um, in the discussion about kind of what it takes to make people laugh right now, this just ongoing weird discourse about boundaries needing to be crossed and and what's off limits and what's in limits. Um, kind of just in awe of of Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo for kicking all of those comedy bros in the gonads and proving them very wrong. Um, you can just make a funny, funny, joke-filled, dumb movie um, when you commit this hard. There's a scene in the movie where uh, Barb and Star are asked, I think they're at the talking club, because that's the club they're in. They're in talking club, and they're talking about their job at Jennifer's Convertibles, which they've recently been fired from, but they don't want to reveal that they've been fired from Jennifer's Convertibles, and they attempt to lie about it, and they begin to babble in this harmonious way it feels like a chemical reaction like everything is bouncing everywhere you're just watching their voices entangle and they are on this wavelength that very few performers it's like it's it's like watching two halves of a zoolander they're working in tandem in (laughs) such a strange way i can't think of it's like zoolander it's like austin powers it's like anchorman but there's two of them doing this in sync and i find that to be its own kind of spectacle. Um, and then when, when the movie ends up shifting into kind of like an Austin Powers spy spoof where uh, Kristen Wiig gets to play another weirdo character, 
Um, and then there's this surreal Bubsy Berkeley musical elements to it. Um, Jamie Dornan. Great musical number. Oh, my God. I, I'm sure I will see him in Belfast one day. I have not watched that movie yet, but I find it very hard to believe that I'll think he was better in it than he is here in, in Barb and Star. Um, he's definitely not. And he's I fine know. in he's, Belfast. He's, I mean, he's really... You have to appreciate, even a movie like Wild Mountain Time, which is demented, um, <laughs> you have to appreciate how actively he's sort of been trying to broaden his horizons over the last two years. He's also uh, a great he's, rom-com lead in this movie. Like, when it goes into a bridesmaidsian mode in the, in the second yeah. half, it also works. And I think these are just I, perfectly I, baked I, sketch characters who are working in, in every scenario. And then they dance to Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On remix. Talk about the... Nostalgia wave that we're experiencing. Oh but, my god! Oh man, I lost my. I shit. feel like this movie. I feel like this movie is sorely missing something. I can't put my finger on what it is, but it doesn't quite work for me. Everything kind of feels like a huh. That's kind of funny, and nothing feels like an actual laugh. But I did oh, warm man. the cockles of my heart to uh, revisit the uh, song that Jamie Dornan gets to have singing when he's dancing on the beach and singing to the pigeons. It's a real banger. Um, it's not shot very well. It is uh, shot which very is, well. That's the thing. It isn't. Um, studio that comedy, sequence these studio budgets, is, they need to be weird. That, that's, that sequence like really runs out of visual imagination, which I think sort of flatlines the song. But they're trying something. I appreciate it. Um, I, You know, this is a movie that needed theaters. I know the comedy has flourished at home uh, forever, um, and or as long as we've had motion pictures uh but it is also really needs to sort of be born in the air we're all expelling our co2 into a cloud <laughs> that's not going to kill each other uh in a room and the laughter is the most contagious thing around um and i think that's the only i disagree really i laughed my fucking ass off and I i'm not saying that you didn't you're now. not disagreeing with shit i'm just saying that <laughs> no. for me it didn't i know it I didn't know. work i'm saying so, but i mean you know i'm not mad at it the alamo draft house theme menu for this movie would have been spectacular we were all yeah. deprived of that i think they actually well, brought it to draft house like did months they later and did some revival screenings i hope that this movie has that that moment or maybe 10 years from now it will but uh um, you'll have the mcgruber it's on McGruber hulu arc. so i will be watching this movie over and over when i'm in a rut it's very uh tied to me i don't remember when it came out but like the the very dark pre-vaccine period where it was just like oh i'll never dance again i'll never go out to a, like a hotel again and it felt like this very like nice balm of like ah the world is there somewhere even watching it at home uh all right moving on number nine to something less comedic david you picked to remind you saint maud saint maud uh yes another another movie that uh I really wanted it to be in a particular place on my list, but a movie that I stay with me fondly since I saw it in theaters at the 2019 uh, Toronto Film Festival. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, it's been around for a hot minute. Uh, and one of my really delightful memories of festival going in general, uh, and I won't, I won't get too granular about this because I'd really hate to spoil it for um, anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but uh, this is a movie that, Similar to something like Benedetta, although I would argue, at least to this point, much more effectively, is really going back, makes you go back and forth for the entire film as to whether or not the protagonist, who's this young, very religiously uh, overzealous woman who's a caretaker for Jennifer Ely um, in Wales somewhere, and is, uh, is she actually experiencing these sort of visions from God, or is this just the form that her psychosis has taken? Um, and, and she's very, uh, 
sort of the self-flagellating uh, masochistic strain of religious zealotry. Uh, she is walking on needles that she puts in her shoe and inflicting all sort of self-harm um, and and other things that I don't want to get into. But um, her, her religiosity seems to be taking quite a toll on her body, needless to say, and it's expressed in violent terms. But the whole movie is sort of spent going back and forth as to whether or not this is real or in her head. Um, and you do get a definitive answer. And, um, or is it, you know, in one way or another. Um, <laughs> and a fellow critic of mine who shall remain nameless uh, left the movie with about, I don't know, 30, 30 45 seconds left. And <laughs> I would say missed half the film <laughs> as a result of that. And the review bears that out. I mean, this is the movie that saves its punchline for uh, the final 10 frames, maybe. Um, and uh, they are worth the 90 minutes or so that it takes to get there. Not that the preceding hour and a half and change is at all interesting. I mean, there are two incredible performances. I have to remind myself, and here we're going into a Patches level name butchering, I am sure, of the uh, <laughs> lead actor's name. Um, as soon as I pull it up, her name is uh, Morphid. <laughs> Morphid Clark. Morphid. Maybe Morphid is... I can't be right. There has to be some sort of spin on it. Uh, very Welsh name. Um, but uh, she is phenomenal. Jennifer, Jennifer Ely is always uh, as this sort of diva-like older woman who is uh, you know, very ill. I think she's terminal cancer. And uh, Saint Maud, whatever her name is in the movie, Katie, has been uh, brought in to care for her, um, is, is divine. Uh, and the dynamic between them is... Morphid Clark and the computer betrayed me. Morphed, and uh, it, it is just wonderful, and it goes to some dark places, and has a lot of fun negotiating faith and the role that it can assume for some people, and um, how that can be warped. Uh, and for Rose Glass, who's the first time writer director who made it, uh, I, I think it's a hell of a calling card, um, and easy to see wherever you can find I think these days it should be on one streaming service or another so cool ass movie Saint Maud I think it's on Hulu and Amazon if uh, you want to check that out <laughs> sounds like a barrel of laughs good service <laughs> Uh, alright I think that means that we are now up to the eights uh, and I'm at the top of the order again, but this movie, I believe we will be talking about again. So I will just briefly mention this, uh, is a movie about the friendship between two little girls, uh, that about halfway through reveals itself to be a time travel movie, which meant that I was in love with it. It's, uh, <laughs> Petite Maman, um, about a, um, little girl named Nellie who goes with her family to the house of her late uh, grandmother and uh, witnesses her parents sort of uh, dealing with some trauma and her way of uh, dealing with the, the new future is to go out into the woods where she finds another little girl who is building a fort and that little girl and Nellie start hanging out and then one day uh, that little girl's like come back to my house and Nellie somehow goes back to the same house and I think that's where I will leave it until we pick mm. up uh, Petite Maman later on. It's um, just a very gentle, heartfelt, and earnest movie 
uh, and that's are those are the ones that I found. Uh, earnestness has been weaseling my my way into weaseling its way into my top ten. Uh, this You're year. getting older. I know. I know. It's got to be. <laughs> it. Is this this but, is like as close to like a movie about uh, kids as I could get because it becomes time travel in a certain way. I was earnestness without smarm, if that's the way to put yes. it. Like it is about feelings, but it's not. It's it's kind of unflinching about the range of feelings that exist in in human life, which is um, it feels like it shouldn't be rare, but it is. Yeah, and it also doesn't need to get as blunt as something like Coda, which, like as I noticed, said also works. But Petite Maman doesn't have to go there uh, to, I think, plumb the the depths that it does. Uh, uh, this uh, this Celine Sciamma who made it is, has she done anything before that we might know? Oh, I don't know. She's lit nah. some portraits oh, of ladies on fire. <laughs> oh, oh, it's that. Oh, the same Celine Sciamma mm. who made Girlhood and Tomboy Girlhood. and Waterloo. Oh, like maybe the greatest uh, living filmmaker. Yeah, no, she fucking crushes this movie. You know the uh, vibe that I got from it and was so um, I was so overjoyed to see that she had made the same reference point in the press notes after I saw the film was My Neighbor Totoro. Mm. Uh, there is a big Studio Ghibli sort of uh, conflict avoidant, but still very emotionally piercing, um, mm. reassuring, but also honest and unflinching element to the to the film. And uh, I, man, it's 72 minutes long yes. and it packs a absolute wallop of a punch but not in at all an overpowering way i mean it's just it feels just so true and so emotionally lucid and it hasn't really come out right like it's it has not i guess it's a 2021 movie but they uh we counted as 2021 i mean i can't speak for dave i counted as 2021 and i'm uh uh you know accepting dave's uh classification for it on these grounds because it was um, in neon, he got a qualifying, he got a qualifying run yeah. briefly in New York. It was not chosen as French Francis submission for the Oscars. They went with Titan, which did not get shortlisted ultimately. I think it was a little bit too challenging for the uh, some of the voters in the uh, international category. But um, you know, they were sort of between a rock and a hard place, and they uh, love fucking over Celine Sciamma as they did with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which they really shot themselves in the foot for going with Les Misérables instead. Uh, that was the parasite year. They were not going to win, but you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, they, so this movie did have a qualifying run in Brooklyn briefly in 2021. It will be getting a release, uh, more brought more widely, not in 2000 screens or anything like that, but it'll be available in the very near future in February. Playing on a Hulu near you because of neon <laughs> streaming deal. There you go. Excellent. Love that streaming deal. Uh, and yeah, we will be uh, returning to it a little bit later, but a movie we won't be returning to because Patches is bringing it with the unique picks, and that <laughs> continues here at number eight. I, I mean, I kind of went out of my way to try and pick things that would not be on other lists, too. That was that was a goal, because uh, talking about lots of different movies is, is a good thing. Um, I also, it's dawning on me that this pick is a movie that never played in theaters. This is a straight-to-streaming movie. I'm about to put on my list, which is, I guess, rather Don't shocking. Don't you do it. Rather shocking. Don't you do it. Uh, it's called No oh, Sudden Move. Hey! It's a Steven Soderbergh joint. Soderbergh, unretired, just dropping great fucking movies on HBO Max. That's his thing now. It's like, does not give a shit where they play. He's not overthinking it. He's just shooting the shit and, and putting it on streaming services. I'm so happy he does, because this movie, I don't know, it hinges on, on the draftsmanship of engineers. It's like 
these people <laughs> know every screw and know when to crank each one, um, which might be especially at metaphor because it's uh, kind of about automobiles and, and motor city history and industry. Um, a <laughs> this, topic, this a topic a I do not care about card. at all. Yeah, yeah. A great, uh, this, this puts imitation game to shame. Um, <laughs> we do not call them computers. We call them cars. Uh, we did a whole podcast about No Sun and Moon. So I would direct people to that when it was probably fresher in all of our minds. But uh, if you haven't seen this movie, this is, it stars Don Cheadle as Kurt. He's straight out of jail. And he picks up a little, a little crime gig, a little thief gig. Um, and throughout this movie, I mean, the crime does not go as planned. Benicio del Toro is with them. Uh, what's his name? Kieran Culkin, uh, in, in a small part is one of the criminals and man, Don Cheadle's swindling. He's being swindled. There's racial division. There's simple sliminess. I mean, this movie is just turning over and over and over. There's really interesting twists punctuated by moments of violence. My head was spinning. As the water was rising and and things were cooking, um, I just I love Soderbergh in almost every one of his modes. This is a good. I, I think he really gets the heist movie now, and he uh, working with Ed Solomon, who wrote this movie, who's just like what a journeyman screenwriter. Bill and Ted, um, and now something that could not be further from Bill and Ted, uh, Men in Black. But um, I, I feel like Ed spent a lot of time researching. Detroit, Motor City, Motor City history, uh, the people who were in orbit, and and calculating a heist movie that no one could pull off, like Soderbergh. He's using these strange lenses to create this imperfection. The wide blocking in the shots, uh, just like all this movie comes together because of shagginess, because of imperfection, because of people who think they can get away with it and can't, and maybe deserve to get away with it and can't. Um, the actors rip. I just, I think at the time when we talked about it on the podcast, you're kind of bemoaning that Don Cheadle has not done very much besides like Marvel movies and now Space Jam 2, uh, this past year. <laughs> and that is the ultimate crime. Uh, cause no set of movies. He's, he's really fucking good. Really, really movie. good. Just you know, I really cla- like locking horns with different actors. And it's fantastic. Patches, maybe you can sell me. Uh, I, I have actually not seen really so much as a frame of this movie because I, especially these days, uh, only have so much patience for movies that are very twisty. <laughs> He's like very twisty noir thrillers that are going to be, the word convoluted is, is thrown around a lot. And that for me, um, with my limited mental bandwidth uh, ever, and certainly in the second year of a pandemic with a toddler, it was just something that I didn't feel like I had time for, despite having seen just about everything else that Soderbergh has ever made. Uh, would this movie be too taxing on my small little brain? Would I enjoy it? I don't think so, um, because I know that you are also partial to like Ocean's 12, the way that that oh, sure. kind of winds around in itself, and you don't necessarily know. At times, you feel like you don't know what's going on, and then the, the magic trick is pulled, and you do know what's going on. I feel like that this, this movie operates in that way. Katie, Dave... Do you do you agree with that? I don't feel like it's yeah. so twisty that you feel like it's convoluted and you're you're missing something. You may it may be a few steps ahead of you at times, but only because it's so frantic and things are blowing up in people's faces. It's it's like a MacGuffin chase that you care about, and then what the MacGuffin is is revealed at the title card at the end, and you aren't mm. mad at it. 
if that yeah. makes any sort of sense. You are not mad at it. You are yeah. not mad at it. Yeah, okay. it, like it like expands the the framework of the of Yeah, the you're like if we got into the nitty-gritty of what that title card said, this movie would have been boring AF, but it okay. wasn't. Here's but my instead, pitch to you, David. Fraser gets to like show up and Oh, Brendan Fraser is so Fraser. good He's great. in this movie. Uh, David, well, if seeing uh, don't look don't look up and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's big like network moment annoyed you, uh, No Sudden Move has a different network moment in it that rules. So if you okay. want to see it done well, watch that. That's movie. a good sell. Um, yeah, I mean, I just feel I like I don't watch it. heist movies with stakes, like with real character-driven stakes. And here, it's they have to accomplish this because it's their job, it's their well-being. It they need money. Um, they need to stay alive, and I don't know. This is, and 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 Soderbergh executes it pretty effortlessly. I like he the man can pick up a camera. He knows where to put it at this point. It's a bit mathematical, um, but never feels. I don't know. It doesn't. It it, it feels shaggy. He's uh, he's such a perfectionist that he can be imperfect. I really like No Set of Move. Thanks. I mean, thanks for the recommendation. Although part of me, I don't know if this is shared by you guys, feels like and this might be unique to people who work in film and, and see a, every movie that comes out as sort of, uh, you know, a potential obstacle for them to have to overcome. Um, but I can't think of any film that I would less rather watch right now than a movie I missed from 2021. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I, yeah. I mean, I get you. I get you. But that's so antithetical to the episode we're doing. But you know what? The rest of you, who we have about two months where there are not going to be uh, great movies coming out. So I feel yeah. like this is your moment, unless you want to watch Once like, you watch 10 everything episodes from of a streaming television. Oh, yeah. I forgot. And, and most of the people listening to this are not, you know, <laughs> will not I don't have, have to deal with that. do through this. Yeah, yeah. at knife point. Um, yeah, and the Oscars are not for another two fucking months. So, uh, yep. <laughs> this conversation isn't going anywhere. Here's another uh, potential draw for you, David. I watched this movie, and I still don't know if I think Julia Fox is a good actress, but she's in it, and this is another data point that you can help figure out if, you, if we think she's a good actress. I uh, yeah, don't, because I don't the even uh, think interview magazine is. profile with her and Kanye about their one date really needed a... Uh, it was just her. It's just her, her. I think Julia essay. Fox is an actor you use, and she's not an actor who's going to bring something to the table she got she's very into pretty. this movie in the right way yes uh, she's yeah. i mean I, I yeah the jury's out i don't know she was in an indie movie that got like a nothing of a release called pvt chat which i believe was at i want to say tribeca or some other local film festival the here in which she played tribeca okay let's not write yeah, off she played a film. cam girl um and uh she was i thought she was very good in that movie i thought she was excellent on cut gems so i'm certainly Maybe not I'm underestimating her. she is i follow her on instagram she's hilarious <laughs> that that's the measure uh all right katie you get to be the first to bring up this movie which will show up again but katie what is your number eight pick uh yeah i feel like i should have it higher on my list than i have felt like that the whole year uh or ever since i've seen it and i really like everything on my list so it's not like a case of uh this being a demotion um but i wound up with the lost daughter at number eight which is the movie about motherhood that has spoken directly to my soul as it has for very many people. Because it's a movie that dares to ask, sometimes being a mother kind of sucks. And sometimes it makes you feel like you are no longer an individual person. And do I need to do a welfare check on Charlie and Sam real quick? Uh, I mean, if if I feel like if you are a parent of any gender and yes, see this movie yes, and yes. don't relate to it on some level, you uh, are not paying enough attention. I, I saw... Uh, very much saw myself in this movie, and I said sheepishly in sort of a simping liberal male uh, way <laughs> after the Q&A, I said to, to Maggie, I was like, 
Um, you know, Maggie, I, I almost to, to, to well, I mean, I thought that was contextually obvious. Was to, like, to the to director Maggie, and writer Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yes, <laughs> um, she and I are not close personal friends. I would not refer to her as Maggie in other circumstances. I, I mean, I would. I'm not going to call her Miss Gyllenhaal, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, but you know. Um, but I said to her, I was like, I, I, part of me felt like you should have gotten, or they should have gotten, uh, a woman to do this Q and A. I mean, this movie speaks so much to, uh, motherhood in particular, and more specifically than just parenthood more broadly and yeah. a woman's experience. And we talked a lot about that during the Q and A with the cast. Um, and she was like, you're a parent, right? I was like, yeah. And she was like, did you feel like you understood this movie? And I was like, yes, I did. <laughs> she was like, good enough for me. Um, so I yeah. was I was rewatching it recently and I didn't re- manage to rewatch the whole thing. But I was realizing on second viewing that it's also about being on a vacation that's not as good as you thought it was going to be, which mm. is a very mundane thing. But I think the broader theme of the movie about something that you expect to be one way and turns out to be another way. And maybe you are the problem. Maybe your inability to be present and to be in the place where you are is what's getting in your way. Um, but I think that it, this movie is really focused on details. Um, and it like, it uses really tiny things to tell a larger story, both about parenthood and about this woman, Olivia Coleman, who's on this Greek vacation that keeps getting ruined for her by all of these things that really shouldn't ruin her vacation. Um, oh no, Dakota Johnson showed up on my vacation. Dakota <laughs> Johnson with the year's best hair and makeup that tells you so much about her character in such subtle ways, but just she the intensity so of her black eyeliner. She's so good fucking in this movie. good in this movie. Um, yeah. She is, and I mean, this the cast of this movie is outrageous. It's insane that they got Dakota Johnson, Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, and Ed Harris wearing a little pork pie hat and dancing <laughs> in the same film and paul mescal in short shorts let's not uh sure. let's be clear and dagmara dominant speaking of butchering names dagmara from succession mm-hmm. uh in a uh leopard print bathing suit um it's a oh, really wow. good movie i'm gonna continue like turning it over in my head for a long time i think um but but the second viewing of the vacation ruining i was like oh man there's even more layers to this than i thought and maybe we'll discuss more than yeah later. there's that scene where she's laying in her um her villa, and she wakes up and hears this bug. This bug is just sitting right next to her. And I'm like, what is this vacation? And then she wants her windows open and she throws the bug out, but she doesn't close the window. Like, you have an air conditioner, yep. your villa. You gotta close, you gotta She's get got over the, the dream. Open. She's listening to all that fucking harbor noise. It'd make an excellent, paradise. An ex- the harbor noises is wonderful. It would make an excellent double feature with Barb and Star go to Vista tomorrow. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, <laughs> All right, David, you also get to bring up uh, for the first time a movie that will be appearing more. You picked for your number eight, Licorice Pizza. Sure did. Uh, I I have a long and proud tradition of putting Paul Thomas Anderson movies in like the, the eight-ish spot, um, knowing full well that five years later, I will think that that was probably the best film of its year. Um, <laughs> I, I did it with Phantom Thread, uh, knowing full well what I was doing at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if Phantom Thread was my very favorite movie of 2018, but it's got to be one or two. Uh, and uh, that's just the way that it goes. I've only had the one opportunity to see like Licorice Pizza and it stayed with me uh, very well. I, I love this movie dearly. We talked about it at length, I feel, a couple of weeks ago. I think like um, literally last week. Literally right? last week. Uh, and my opinion, believe it or not, has not changed in the last seven delirious <laughs> COVID-addled days. Uh, and uh, it still fucking rips. And... Uh, I can't wait to revisit it. It is the kind of movie that I wish, boy, I look forward to maybe, you know, being on cable in perpetuity um, and just being able to come in and out of it at random times. Patch has mentioned earlier 
you're putting on Barb and Star. And as we've talked about in this podcast, I, my brain has been so conditioned by years of growing up in sort of the cable generation to, to not go out of my way and a la carte, like pick something. I have all these fucking Blu-rays that I never get off of my ass and go put in. Um, but if something is on cable, like Titanic is uh, 362 days a year, I will watch it at whatever point in time I come across the movie. And I think Licorice Pizza is the kind of movie that could thrive uh, watching it like that. Uh, I can only hope to say that uh, Cooper Hoffman, Alana Haim, I want to see them both, or Haim, I want to see them both in uh, other things. Although, flip side, the performances they give here are the kind of like one and done things that could be the stuff of legend. Uh, yeah. Which is they came on screen, gave absolutely perfect performances in the spirit. Although, um, Cooper Hoffman has been in other things and recently. Uh, and I assume they will both be in other things again. But is wonderful, Cooper Hoffman wonderful movie. Per- pursuing an acting career? Because I feel like he's been so I don't know like, if he has deliberately. To pursue it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I it's guess... kind of finding him. Well, like, he's been so deliberately not part of the like marketing campaign for the movie. Like, I think they've been trying to kind of keep him out of it. Um, so I just wondered if he was like, he was like, no, nah, I'm done. No, I mean, when I saw the movie, uh, it was at the DGA in New York, and he and Alana were both there and were, uh, you know, very warm and affectionate talking about the movie. And uh, it was it was great to hear them talk. And I know that they participated in a number of interviews, uh, but maybe not as many as I thought. PTA really seemed to be doing the line share of the coverage. Alana Haim did a, a, a Haim did a bunch of interviews. I know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe he was gun shy. Maybe he's busy. Maybe there's a pandemic. I have no fucking idea. But he is <laughs> wonderful in the movie and doesn't seem, from what I could tell anyway, opposed to you know, leaning into being a, an actor. All right. I think that's going to do it for our number eight, which means we get to move on to the sevens where something very special has happened. Patches and I have picked the exact same really? movie. We have. I was afraid this wasn't going to be on anyone's list, so I'm excited to hear you talk about it. Oh, you're over- please represent both of us. We can talk about us. it together. Okay, so we have uh, picked uh, the movie Passing, uh, directed mm. by Rebecca Hall, starring Tessa Thompson, Ruth Nega, Andre Holland, and uh, Alexander Skarsgård playing the character Alexander Skarsgård <laughs> plays, and also Bill Camp. And also Bill Camp. Bill Camp. Yeah, he's good in that. He gets a few good look at little scenes. Uh, it's a set in 1920s New York. Uh, Tessa Thompson plays a uh, light-skinned black woman uh, living in Harlem, but who runs across an old friend from the neighborhood, Claire, who is now passing as a white woman. And uh, together, this movie... <laughs> together, they, uh, I guess, debate... Uh, the positives and negatives of being a black person who uh, can possibly pass and what it's like existing in both black and white spaces as this sort of in-between person. Um, I'm I'm going to say like the screenwriting isn't necessarily where this movie shines for me. It's the performance is sort of paired mm. with the decision to make it 4-3 black and white. And there are a couple of movies... Uh, this year that have dealt with four three black and white like Shakespeare adaptations or just black and white like Belfast, um, and uh, have made you know specific decisions about it. I think uh, Tragedy Macbeth and uh, Passing do the most with making both of those things conscious choices. Obviously, for Passing, having a black and white uh, grayscale color grade 
makes for a much more thematically uh immediately evident thematically resonant things uh such as there's a shot rarely on of Ruth Nega in her hotel room and the walls are white and she is sitting in the sunlight and they have color balanced it in the correct way so right where the highlight reaches her skin it, it becomes the perfect color of the white mm-hmm. wall and she blends into the background uh, of the white wall um i think Ruth Nega is doing some amazing uh work here and a lot of it is like body and expression work because again i wasn't like absolutely taken away by the screenplay but i do think the piece as a whole um elevates itself uh, a little bit above the um what it thinks it has to be at the end uh with the alexander skarsgård character etc you know one of the reasons why alexander skarsgård has become just locked into the alexander skarsgård type uh i was reminded on cable tv my my Mm -hmm. uh, the near dear to my heart the other day is tarzan because he Mm. chose to do tarzan uh, for some, you know, unknown reason. And that movie was I mean, the reason awful. is he gets to lead a big blockbuster movie. Yeah, but you'd think you could have held out for something. Margot Robbie better, escaped from that in one piece. She did, but she wasn't Tarzan. Uh, she was Jane. I think Alexander Scarzo is doing just fine. He's doing just fine. He's really good on Succession and isn't, he, is he doesn't good on kill or rape anybody on Succession that we've seen yet. Yeah. Succession uh, feels like this, his first attempt to sort of tunnel out from the... The sort of whole of terrible, terrible the, men. The I mean, not that he's uh, not a terrible man necessarily. <laughs> let's not make Alexander Skarsgård the the center of this conversation. On and, well, yeah, passing. I think I think it should be Rebecca Hall. This is really confident and great in terms. of I mean, the that's how I felt. That, debut. Like, I saw this at at home virtual Sundance in in January 2021, and it just I was was mesmerized even watching it on a computer screen. For the first time, it just felt so confident, austere in a way that that works. Um, uh, we've talked about this one at length, so and and Dave, you put it really, really well. Um, I'm kind of with you on maybe the the screenplay. I have not read the original novel by Nella Larson, so I'm not sure how like on rails the screenplay is. But I I read it, and the the movie is very uh, faithful to the novel. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it because I really think Rebecca Hall loves 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 this text and and really saw every scene i mean what why i do think the screenplay works is every scene feels like it's in the right place like it's chronicling the amount of time in the right way and that's like it's kind of weighing down on tessa thompson or the effervescent roaring 20s atmosphere that uh rebecca hall is able to bring to like the party scenes and just the neighborhoods it, it, it then feels like this passing revelation uh, is like a gas leak in the room like everyone's slowly succumbing to the truth and everything is going to slowly crumble and the, tr- the tragedy that unfolds i mean in the end i was just like so chilled uh, not just in the moment of the the really gruesome tragedy that literally happens at the end but just like how we've not come very far in these conversations just about the societal tension and, and code switching and the minefield of knowing who we are. Um, I just think this movie had so much to say and did it in such a beautiful, beautiful way. I mean, the, every image, every black and white image you said, Dave, is just like portraiture. I just think on whatever indie budget it was made, um, it's just putting every dollar there. It looks amazing. Passing. You could check it out on the Netflix right now. 
And I'm not going to hold it against them. They sent me a very large, useless book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just they comes said, with they being a Netflix. Oh, two, yeah. Didn't they? Didn't Netflix uh, of you know not send the actual novel, which is something they usually do. I mean, I that's feel like true. I got a novel I for I... the Power of the Dog. I got a novel for. Um, you know, but, yeah, I got I got a fucking leather bound five hundred page book. That David did not put it on his list because for... he did not get set the novel. That's right. <laughs> that's why. Um, I I toyed with putting it on my list. Uh, I, but another I... another in a year full of really wonderful debut directorial debuts by actors and actresses in particular. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it feels like it's been neglected by Netflix because it's got. The Lost Daughter right there, which is kind of the more uh, awards trajectory one, but that feels very uh, unfair to it. Uh, well, Katie, there is one movie with a seasoned director that is ready for some awards, and uh, I think you picked it for number seven. Now you make me feel like a real asshole for choosing it instead of uh, passing, so uh, thank you very much. I put West Side Story on my list. <laughs> Heard of it? West Side. Uh, it's one of the few movies I've seen in a packed theater this year, and I'm sitting next to Matt Patches, who is uh, uh, scoffing at certain moments where uh, <laughs> Ansel Elgort scattered birds all over the, the city of New York and so many questions uh, for Mr. caused trouble for various people going by. Um, but it just, it, in terms of a cinematic experience of seeing something big and spectacular and Seeing something big, you mean uh, the lead actress's eyes in the movie, because they're so huge, Yes, they are very big. She has uh, real uh, Sailor Moon um, vibes there. Um, (laughs) That was actually exactly what Katie was talking about. Yes, big eyes. Um, Big eyes. (laughs) Yes, but what Christoph Waltz really had in mind was Rachel Zegler in there. Um, I didn't think this movie could be pulled off. I I was so skeptical that I would want a new West Side Story, and it turned out it really did. It turns out it's a great story. There are so many... Really wonderful performances in it. Mike Feist. <laughs> just laughing. It was the year's best comedy. No, I was just laughing. Oh. Remembering the Golden Globes. Good Golden Globes. Yeah, the uh, Golden Globes wrong. are a bunch of psychopaths, but they uh, correctly gave it the best musical or comedy award. And um, it had a- It tickled our funny bones. There are forty-three muscles required to make a smile. I thought about making that reference when I was talking about Tactic Boom. Um, Steven Spielberg turns out to be a really fucking great director, and I'm just so glad he made a musical, that he made this one, that he tinkered with it, and I feel just the right ways with Tony Kushner. Um, Ansel Elgort being not the uh, best part of this movie, um, but not ruining it, as I know Dave felt he did. Um, We've talked about it (laughs) recently, um, but I'm just delighted that this movie exists and that it, uh, it, it proved its worth of having been remade. West Side Story. It's big. It's it's glossy. It's New New York <laughs> as you love to see it. Uh, all right, David, you picked uh, another neon film. Squeezing in here. This is uh, Nicolas Cage looking for his pig in Pig. Uh, oh, I was gonna I was gonna say I need a little bit more uh, <laughs> a little bit more to figure out which movie we're talking about here. Um. Yeah. Uh. Pig. We talked oh, about uh, pig on this the podcast. Is, this, this is also not the, the last time Pig's going to show up. I don't think we talked about Pig on the podcast. We have we not? No. Uh, pig is a movie that I guess there was a little pocket over the summer, similar uh, around the same time when No Sudden Move came out, where I was just not giving the proper due to movies that colleagues of mine were raving about, and in uh, saner times may have seemed up my alley. But I think I had just been burned by one too many Nicolas Cage. Performances in recent memory, even though Mandy wasn't all that long ago and was another movie that was high on my list that particular year. But, uh, and there's Prisoners of the Ghostland this year, as Nicolas Cage's uh, collaboration with Sion Sono, which kicked things off in Sundance last year, um, which was interesting. But 
uh, I figured the pig could wait. I wasn't sure what to, what to make of it. Um, and uh, it turns out I loved it deeply. It is a movie that is sort of set up to follow the John Wick or Taken template of a wronged outsider who sort of vows revenge and goes on a... Well, I a, guess I'm back. Yeah, and goes on a, an unexpected uh, roaring rampage of revenge, you know, abandoning his quiet life of peace and serenity that he had worked so hard to achieve to exact satisfaction on the people who had wronged him. Um, and while this movie follows that overall trajectory... It's very much not about uh, it, how it goes about it is very different. Nicholas Cage plays a former chef, a famous sort of gastronomical wonder, sort of the cutting edge of the Portland culinary scene who uh, sort of disappeared to the woods after the death of his wife some 20 years earlier or so. The exact timeline is unspecific. And lived as a recluse in the woods away from human life and just uh, living with his truffle pig. Uh, who we formed a very close relationship with. And the movie starts with that pig being pignapped by a couple of meth addicts who wanted <laughs> to sell it. Um, and he has to go back into Portland um, and sort of get to the bottom of who has his pig. Uh, and there are... If you ever wondered if there is a weird restaurant criminal nightlife, Pig says. Yes, yes. Yeah, there that, is. That aspect of the movie didn't sit well with everyone. I thought it was... I mean, this is a movie that's structured a lot sort of like a trip into hell. I mean, I made, I've made a lot of parallels when I've written about it to Greek mythology, and there are a lot of references to Greek mythology in the film. Um, and he is sort of, uh, you know, his wife, his absent wife, who does not show up in the film, is sort of a Eurydice character, and he's Orpheus, and he's led back into hell. Uh, and Portland, the underworld, is, is literalized by the sort of underground fight club. Uh, but for me, this is really a, a beautiful story about Grief and the difficulty of acceptance, I think that the idea of acceptance is sort of seen as a destination in most stories about grief and not as sort of a multi-tiered journey in and of itself. Uh, and this movie really unpacks uh, accordion style, sort of un unzips the whole process of acceptance as this whole mythology um, and a place where you can spend decades of your life toiling in, in a kind of purgatory, even if you've moved on from the other phases of grief. Um, and it is also, there's, there's a lot of ratatouille in there. I don't want to go into specifics <laughs> of why, but uh, this is a movie that, I'd say, cleaves closer to sort of what Brad Bird is doing in that film in terms of the emotional power of food, for one thing, than it does anything that you might expect to see in John Wick or Taken or et al. Uh, and it, it never really misses the mark. It never missteps. It stays true to its mission and its tone from start to finish and ends on a beautiful note with a... Uh, so another excellent needle drop of a kind that you won't see coming. Um, and uh, is as good as anything Nicolas Cage has really ever made. I mean, I, it's, he's a phenomenal performance, a beautiful movie, another first-time film um, by uh, Michael Sarnowski is the name of the writer-director. Um, love to hear his story and how he made this happen, but uh, yeah. he had a great story to tell and found the right actor for it and the right pig. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. That's I, that's probably my, if I were to like shoot with my heart, my best original screenplay pick because I do think huh. it does it does a lot of things really smartly. I don't know. Maybe I'll get to say more in the future. Who knows? Let's not spoil things. Let's move on. Hmm. It is time for the number sixes. We're almost done with this half an episode. Wow. Uh, I get to start off uh, by mentioning something that we've already talked about, and not only that, it's not going to be the next the last time it comes up either. Uh, my number six, I picked uh, The Lost Daughter. I don't have kids, but 
Uh, that but now you want does. them. You saw it, and you're like, "Wait, this <laughs> looks great." Wait, wait. I could just, I could just leave and deal with the consequences after they're adults. Like Perfect. I could deal with adult consequences. Figure out your life, kids. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to work. I don't want to work with like small children. Like the most traumatizing scenes in this movie were for me were when she's actually like reaching her breaking point with the two little girls in a very small apartment, and like one accidentally bla- breaks a window trying to get her attention. Yeah. I'm just like, oh no, that's that's terrifying. That it doesn't she? Break she breaks the, the window. She slams. She breaks the window. And slamming the door, yeah. and she's sort of horrified at her own. And that's something that I think. Well, I don't want to. This is Dave's segment. I don't want to get into like as a parent, but it's certainly a moment where you sort of step outside your body and feel as the father. Of uh, yeah, no, but like you, you're so frustrated with your kids, um, and you're not like laying hands on them or anything, but you feel your frustration and are sort of ashamed at acting in the way that you told yourself you wouldn't act as a parent but it's part of the course of being a parent anyway yeah and then i like what the movie has to say about uh you know that people who struggle with parenting it's not uh i think uh, one of the things that we always wanted to combat early on with like teen mom is the sort of idea that you can it's very clear what the right or wrong decisions are and people Mm. who make the wrong decisions have chosen at some point to make the wrong decision. Mm. I like the uh, gray area that Lost Daughter uh, presents of, uh, you know, the real, I think, tug of emotions that parenting brings out in somebody. So I've heard. (laughs) But Uh, have you been on a vacation that sucked despite your best efforts? (laughs) Oh, yeah. See, that's what makes it relatable. And uh, like uh, David was saying, Pork by Hat, Ed Harris. Yeah. uh, That guy guy seems familiar to me. Dancing to to Bon Jovi. Yes. I mean, living on a prayer. Great I scene. could, I could be, yeah. Also, yeah, uh, you just deal cards, with adult right? consequences. Yeah. Uh, all right, patches. You get to for your number six. Also, I think uh, bring up one that we've talked about, but it would also come up again. You get the middle slot for licorice pizza. Yeah, uh, I I picked licorice pizza because it's it's sticking with me. I keep thinking about even the conversation that we had about it. How this movie goes. I've seen a lot of people describe it as a hangout movie. I think it's something deeper. I think there is more narrative and momentum to the movie than it's getting credit for. And it gets dark and scary and, and, and intense. And the feelings of growing up are, it really immerses us in that feeling. I don't think it's like a coming of age story that is aloof and teaches us a, a moral lesson. I think it really brings us into a coming of age story and, and transports us back to the, our own moments there, um, even when it's taking place in the 70s um i found the movie super charming and super styled and i really fell hard for the for the film um i'm just surprised what paul thomas anderson can do i think i mentioned this when we reviewed it on the podcast a week or two or three ago but like he just puts all these ideas right on the screen like put have sean penn drive a motorcycle like a madman have this gasoline uh shortage like have a crazy night out with these characters and like what it means for them i just all these moments in history and all these things that he's tangling together i'm i'm so excited every time he makes a movie because he can bring all these disparate elements and and really use them together around and around characters who feel alive um i think licorice pizza is a great great movie also i maybe we mentioned this last time but like what a world that we live in uh 
that Leonardo DiCaprio's dad made a better movie than Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> this year. I mean, when you say made you... a better movie, I, was I don't know if I want to put that better. much on He was in George DiCaprio in children. the better movie than Leo this year. Yes. He we was. can we can give him that. Yeah, he could he should definitely lord that over his son for the rest of his life. Oh god, that scene is so funny. Waterbeds. Also, have you ever laid on a waterbed? I mean, yeah, I just feel like weird. there hasn't been enough conversation about waterbeds when it comes That's to licorice pizza. I gotta stick up for air mattresses. As someone who spent the last 10 days sleeping on an air mattress because my wife was quarantining in our bedroom. They can be very uh, plush. They can feel Yeah, nice. and as as over the as the 10 days went by and I was too lazy and too exhausted to <laughs> refill deflating. the air in the mattress and it got <laughs> deflated and the mattress got like soggier and soggier <laughs> and I was sort of sinking into it. It did start to feel kind of like a waterbed. No, so no. A different experience have you ever laid night. on a waterbed? No. I have, I have. Waterbed, like, it does like not moving. Like, yes. long after yeah. you have stopped moving, you're just rolling on them. Oh, Very it's strange. awful. <laughs> One of my favorite cinematic experiences was having a fever of 102, turning off the heat in my brother's waterbed so it would be cold, and watching natural-born killers with all the lights <laughs> off, and just sort of being like, my body. <laughs> I didn't realize you could heat waterbeds, but I guess that makes perfect sense. That can't be yeah, it, it would it would it would get really cold. I you think. have to replace. I feel the like water. your your sperm is dying somehow. Yeah, if you're uh, <laughs> sleeping on a heated water bed, that would be Probably. my. If I had to pick the ailment that was happening, that's where I would. Unfortunately, now dying. we know why Dave doesn't have kids. We yes, that's get right. Too much time on the heated water bed. I don't have COVID or children. I feel so bad for myself. Uh, all right. Speaking of kids, I feel like we could uh, pivot into the our other two sixes. Katie, you've picked. Come on, come on. Yeah, am I the only one? I thought wow. I you are. You're, you're the only yeah. come on, come yeah. on entry. I, I haven't I seen it. Yeah, <laughs> well, Katie, take it away. I know, and I don't. I'm not a kid actor person, as we all know, and I didn't expect to be. Uh, I didn't expect to respond to this so strongly in a vacuum because I think there are a lot of people like David who kind of. I mean, David can speak for himself, but I felt so moved by this movie. I have been a, a Joaquin Phoenix defender when the time calls for it. Like, I think it can be really good, even though he's pretty obnoxious as a celebrity. Um, and I think he's so lovely and natural in this is his uncle kind of taking care of this kid. Um, and it's written by Mike Mills, inspired by his own kid. But I think he knows that like no one wants to see a movie about a dad who doesn't know to take, how to take care of his kids because like, fuck you. But I think everyone who has a kid knows the feeling of being with this person where you're just like, what in the world? Like, we're just to walk down the street together and get somewhere. And you're so weird. And I can't believe like the way that you look at the world. And it captures that so well. It's got this really wonderful kid performance from Woody Norman. Um, as they go on this, you know, cross country trip and it ties in all these different, you know, elements about grief and about talking to real people and building a community around you and like how to raise a kid and not fuck it up and feel like you're fucking it up the whole time. And then it ends on this really lovely grace note, like not to spoil it too much about how kids like completely upend your life and you are this one tiny footnote in the whole beginning of their lives. And they may or may not even remember the interactions that you have. And that uh, really very, very hit me. Thought. I know, but uh, it's give I mean, me the lost daughter any day. It, Jesus Christ, that's it's, bleak. It's it's something I think about a lot because if you have little kids like you do, David, like they're not going to remember this part no, of their lives, not, which is so not a bit fucked. I mean, they're no. certainly not going to remember this part of their lives. But the goal of being a parent, a narcissistic, self-involved <laughs> parent like I, of course, am, is to raise children that do value you. Uh, yeah, no, they, the value, cycle they value you. That that's not the like, point. You know, no, eh. no, that no, the you point can't... is that they 
program. The point is that they value you, but yeah, you they you are they are themselves. They, they are not a supporting character yes, in your story. No, you are I, a supporting <laughs> character in theirs, and that is. And I am I am decidedly uninterested in raising a little me. I think like that, that oh, is something yeah, I've been very cognizant in avoiding, <laughs> not foisting my own. Uh, sensibilities, but no Disney movies and, being... and no animated trash. No, only <laughs> my only my only policy is, and I think it's a good one, a healthy one for parents everywhere. Is just no computer generated animation for as long as I can help it. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. I, but I, I think asks I'm... for a person on the video game screen. Yeah, oh my god, but, don't yeah. talk to me about the fucking person, Dave. That's below the belt, uh, and that's anime styled. If anything, come on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I've said this on a previous episode anecdotally, and I'm loath to say this once, let alone repeat it, because I really abhor all essentialist takes about movies. But um, anecdotally, I found that most of my friends who have kids have been left cold by this movie, whereas people I know who don't have kids and are you know, a little bit easier to engage with the idea of kids as an abstract have been emotionally responsive to this movie. Obviously, Katie is not right. even just the, extent, the, the exception flower. to the rule. No, I mean, but like, I, you may just you know, be enough to trash my uh, anecdotal <laughs> evidence of the takes of this movie altogether. But um, yeah, I just feel like this is a lot. I, 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 my heart is with Mike Mills. I, I love that he's out there and doing his thing. I think he has one thing that he does and he riffs on it in different ways. He has a very particular worldview and a small pinhole lens to which he looks at it, but he's really trying to refine the story that he tells and the way that he tells it. I have endless respect for that and the heart that he brings films um this from from its opening conceit and the various like real interviews that they have with kids interspersed throughout the movie to its aesthetic and that eye roll of a last scene um i just found it to be very sort of npr nonsense very um <laughs> manufactured very cutesy in all the ways that a film like 20th century women struck me as being honest and raw and finding just the right amount of affectation to sell the emotions. And when he was making a film about his mom here, making a movie, a similarly personal movie about becoming a father, um, which he has in the years since and, and raising a child, uh, it all felt a little bit prefab and, and false to me. Um, as much as I enjoyed seeing Joaquin Phoenix play the most normal character in a movie, uh, yeah. but the meandering quality of it all, the city to the city travelogue, I just, I couldn't engage, but you know, can't and 20th century women left me kind of cold, but I think that's not to bring it back to kids again, but I watched that when I was like, I think basically on maternity leave or something. Like, I feel like my head wasn't screwed on straight. Um, so I felt like I, I kind of clicked into Mike Mills finally on this one. Uh, and then everyone else bailed on me. So thanks. <laughs> well, we're still sticking with kids because we got another returner from David. <clears throat> this one, as we've talked about, is a, a svelte 72 minute time travel movie, Petite Maman. Time try. I, the hairs in the back of my neck are standing up at time travel. Oh, you don't um, like it that it's a time travel movie? No, it is a no, time I mean, travel I mean, movie. Is it though? Yep. Is it? Yep. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is not a time travel movie in, in the conventional sense of the word, but whatever it is, I mean, it's certainly not worth, uh, haggling over the semantics or the least interesting thing about it. Um, there are people, there are, there are certainly, uh, wormholes in the space time continuum that are being exploited. Uh, in this sort of magical realist premise that Celine Siama is working with here, and she very wisely does not belabor the finer points of how it's all working. It has to do with a treehouse, some wood, who knows? It doesn't matter. Uh, it fucking rules. Petite Maman, just, you know, we can move on. Just want to reinforce that when this movie is available to see, whether it's on Hulu or playing 
uh, in a major city near where you live in February or April, whenever it's coming out. Um, 72 minutes well spent, and even if you have to pay your movie ticket prices in 72 minutes, it doesn't seem like a hell of a deal without anything else on a double bill. Trust me, it is all of the nourishment you need. But petite maman, it's so into good. it, and also it's a, like like we're saying. I don't mean to, to like no, I do mean to pressure good movies to be shorter. Like it's, it's I'm so much I'm like so much more willing don't to pressure roll good, the dice. Don't on pressure something. movies to be shorter. Movies are how long they. Need I said to be. good movie, good movies to be shorter. Yes, yeah, we'll we'll get to the really long movies that we have coming up. I'm just saying. Not, yeah, don't <laughs> don't put me into a corner where I have to quote Roger Ebert, but or paraphrase him anyway, but. No, no good movie is too long and no bad movie is too short. I think there's at least a modicum of truth to that. Uh, it's great to see a movie that can be good at 72 minutes because I, you know, there's so many, so many tweets you see, um, and that's a sentence you could probably just leave right there, but there's so many tweets you see <laughs> about uh, how movies are too long. And I, as someone who is assigned to cover the festival beat and have been inundated with 80 minute 75-minute indies for the past 10 years, most of which feel like wisps of an idea that are straining to, to be movies. Um, it is really a, a miracle to see a 72-minute film that feels like an epic in terms of uh, the emotional density of what it's, what it's doing. So Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I co-sign that, and what a great um, you know, sentiment to have halfway through this very long podcast. Halfway through, that means that we're going to be done this week for Fighting in the War Room. That's right. You're going to have to wait until next Wednesday to get your part two of the Fighting in the War Room's 2021 Top 10 podcast. Uh, Don't worry. It's a doozy. That is longer than this one where we get to discuss some great films. Uh, But until then, feel free to follow us all on Twitter. Katie Rich. K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Um, Mr. Patches, uh, Matt Patches over at Polygon. You have uh, David Ehrlich of IndieWire and myself, Dave Gonzalez at TA7E. You can also follow the show at FITWR or email us at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with our picks. Five, four, three, two, and of course, the best uh, movie of the year that we all think uh, was uh, spoiler alert there's some crazy picks uh, see you next week thanks for listening I'll tell you when I'm done Find the way to find my fair lady. I'm done.